This is Archive Atlanta, bonus episode, Rosenwald Schools. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I know, I know, you're wondering what's going on. Yes, I am still on a podcast break, but I couldn't resist surprising my listeners with this bonus interview episode about the history of Rosenwald schools. Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington forged one of the earliest collaborations between Jews and African Americans to create schools throughout the nation for Black children who had no access to publicly funded education. It was an honor to interview author and photographer Andrew Feiler about this this history and how he showcases it in his second book, Better Life for Their Children, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 Schools That Changed America. While the Rosenwald schools that were in Fulton County no longer exist, this history is Georgia history, it's Southern history, it's United States history, it's Black history, and it's Jewish history. So without further ado, here's my talk with Andrew. I'm Andrew Filer. I'm an Atlanta-based photographer. You're being very modest here. And, and right? Al- and author, and, and also uh, an activist. So what came first? Well, that's actually an interesting question. Um, I've been a serious photographer most of my life. Uh, Even my like first, as a child? I got my first camera when I was 11, and I it had a square frame, and within days I was sort of turning it on its side to shoot diamond-shaped images. Really? So I was, because I was like, you know, I got very quickly bored with it. But I, the Savannah, Georgia that I grew up in was one in which if my parents didn't like something, they'd pick up the phone and they'd try to change it. It's what I call small town empowerment. And you may lose, but you can fight the battle. And I learned there and then that I wanted to be involved in the community that I'm in. And I left the South after high school and went bouncing around the world for 15 years, never thought I would come back to the South, and finally concluded that what Atlanta offered was actually what I was looking for, because for various reasons of history and culture, Atlanta is one of those places that no matter where you're from, you can get involved. And that's what I I was looking for. And so I moved back to Atlanta 26 years ago uh, with that intention. And I'm very involved in the not-for-profit community in Atlanta, very involved in the political world of Atlanta. Have you always done it through your photography? Yeah. so So I, about 10 years ago, I started down this path of taking my photography more seriously and mercifully being taken more seriously. But I had to th- I had to think through what is my voice as a photographer. And as I got into it, I realized that the topics to which I was really drawn in terms of more comprehensive storytelling were an extension of my civic values. Uh, in my, my first body of work, my first book, was a portrait of an abandoned college campus, uh, largely abandoned college campus. It happens to be the campus of Morris Brown College, the historically uh-huh. black college. And what did with that body of work, with the cooperation of the college, and I, I will just interject here, Mars Brown had just filed for bankruptcy, and I'm thrilled that they are yes, now re-accredited. on the path to reaccreditation. Yes. But what that body of work was about was these education spaces, which we are so familiar with. You know, We have been in these hallways. We have been in these locker rooms. We have been in classrooms like this, but we're used to seeing them populated by students and teachers, not by ghosts. And so I used that body of work to bring attention to a simple simple fact of American history, that education has been the backbone of the American dream since before there was the United States of America. 
The first taxpayer-funded school in America was created in 1644 in Dedham, Massachusetts, and there's a direct connection between that, the Land-Grant College Act, which creates colleges all across the United States, uh, 1862, the creation of historically black colleges and universities, predominantly in the decades after the Civil War, Rosenwald schools in the early decades of the 20th century, the educational provisions of the GI Bill, which transform America from relatively poor to relatively prosperous, Brown v. Board, and now what are we talking about today? College access, college affordability, crushing levels of student debt. That's a 376-year tradition that is a tradition at risk. And that's what that body of work was about. And the exhibition that was part of that traveled to nine different venues over four and a half years. And it was when I, I had just turned that work into my publisher, University of Georgia Press. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I found myself at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who originated the role of African-American heritage specialist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. And she's the one who first told me about Rosenwald schools. So you had never heard of them? I had never heard of them, and I was shocked. And and I I heard you in another episode, because you're like, I grew up in a Jewish... I am, a, I am a, I, is that, yeah, I am a, you know, into I, history, into civic engagement. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're I, like, what? Yeah. I, 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 I am a fifth generation Jewish Georgian. I have been a progressive activist my entire life. Uh, and, and the sto- the pillars of this story, are, Jewish, oh Southern, progressive activist of the story is the pillars of, are the pillars of my life. How could I have never heard of the story? So I come home and I Google Rosenwald schools and I quickly find that there are a number of books on the topic, but there's been no comprehensive photographic account of the program. And so I set out to do exactly that. So I'm so curious, how do you start this? I mean, you just Google, like, where are they? And you just start heading out? Well, my process is to read and shoot and shoot and read. And the reading informs the shooting and the shooting informs the reading. Um, This project took on a life all its own. I, I read 39 books. Wow. I read probably 75 white papers. Oh, yeah, those uh, like articles. thesis papers. And there's, there are 100 <laughs> Rosenwald schools listed on the National Register of Historic Places. I read 50 National Register oh, nomination goodness. forms, which are full of like oh, unbelievable details, like incredibly like geeky, fun, yeah. historical details. And it was collectively that experience that caused me to say I have so many stories that I ended. This is actually a hybrid body of work. Because there are 85 images in the in, in this book, but there there's a I wrote a short story, roughly 250 word story, that goes with each image or pair of images that brings in these connections of these schoolhouses to all these critical moments in American history: the wow. Trail of Tears, the Great Migration, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, Brown v. Board, the litigation of Brown v. Board. So I should pause here and just talk about what a Rosenwald school is. Yeah, I will. Let's yes. Yeah. So who is Julius Rosenwald, and then what are these schools? Yeah, so Julius Rosenwald was born to Jewish immigrants who had fled religious persecution in Germany. He grows up in Springfield, Illinois, across the street from Abraham Lincoln's home, while Lincoln is resident in Springfield. Really? Is What time period is this? Uh, uh, late 1850s, early 1960s. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, late, yeah, late 1850s, early 1860s. And he rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. And he turns Sears into the world's largest retailer. And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. His cause is what later becomes known as civil rights. 
Booker T. Washington, who's the other protagonist of the story, is born into slavery in Virginia and becomes an educator and is one of the most um, prominent African-American voices, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And he's the founding principal of the historically black college in Alabama, known as, then known as Tuskegee Institute. Two men meet in 1911, and Booker T. Washington has an agenda. He would like Julius Rosenwald to join the board of Tuskegee. And Julius Rosenwald agrees. But the men keep talking. Like, what else what can we do together? And in 1912, they create this program that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. Now, you have to remember, 1911, when they meet, is before the Great Migration, so, which doesn't start until later that decade. So 90% of African Americans live in the South. And schools for African Americans are mostly shacks, with a fraction of the funding provided to schools yeah. for white children. And many jurisdictions don't even have school, public schools for African Americans. They create this program called Rosenwald Schools, and they reach out to the black communities of the South. And they say, we want you to be a full partner in your progress. So if you will contribute to a school, and we will count as your contribution cash, land, material, or labor. And if you will go to the school board, the white school board, we welcome their contribution. But what we require of the white school board is that these are public schools. So they have to agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, pay for the teachers. You do those things, Julius Rosewell will make a substantial contribution towards the construction of the schools. And from 1912 to 1937, they built 4,978 wow. schools across wow. 15 southern and border states. And the program is transformative. Now, is it because Booker T. Washington was all about that industrial education, like trade almost, was there any requirements on what was being taught in these schools? Yeah, so there, you, you are correct that there is this uh, tension among black educational leaders in particular uh, in the, the, at the time that these schools are being created between, uh, and the polls of that are represented in this debate between Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, Booker T. Washington is playing kind of a long game, and he, he believes that we, for African Americans to, Afri the African American community has to establish a economic foundation as a prerequisite for uh, pushing for uh, greater um, like upward mobility, upward, yeah, yeah, upward mobility, and that that required industrial education. Now, he has a bias rooted in rooted in his experiences in the rural South. W. B. Du Bois, who has a more urban and more northern experience, um, advocates for what's called classical education, reading, writing, arithmetic, because uh, he, what he's advocating for is a talent, the creation of a talented tenth uh, that will lead a more aggressive and faster. Progress. That's interesting. So you're so they both were coming at it, but from different angles. Right. Booker T from the bottom, W. Du Bois from the top. Correct. And they and and rooted in their own personal experiences. Yeah, that's interesting. And 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 so the answer to your question ultimately is that these schools offered alt, alt, across the panoply of what Rosenwald schools represent. There's both industrial education and uh, classical education. The mix depends on the local school. That's what I thought. And, okay. Yeah. So it was more that community chose more of what they wanted. I mean, was it was it that hands off in the sense where Rosenwald gave the money, you know, and sort of stepped back, or you know, did, did he want them named after him? Like, how did that whole process? So work? that was not uh, Rosenwald would not get into that level of detail. There is um, in the architectural plans that were first put forth out of Tuskegee Institute and then later by the Rosenwald Fund, a group, and they modified them, the plant, the, these plans. And the whole, there's this whole 
architecture history of these schools in which the architecture essentially is progressive era architecture where they are trying to create uh, architecture and serviced education. And there are certain spaces in these schools which are smaller educational spaces which were specifically designed for industrial education. Whether they were actually used for those purposes depended on the local community. So tell me the time period again. 1911. So, so uh, the, um, the, the uh, Rosenwald and Washington meet in 1911. They create the program in 1912. Um, and for, it's from 1912 to 1937, they build these roughly 5,000 wow. schools. And there, uh, but today, only about 500 of these schools survive. Only about half of those have been restored. Now, did you visit all 500 of no, them? No, so what I, I but I, I, over, I spent three and a half years shooting this project. Oh. Uh, I drove 25,000 miles across all 15 program states, and I shot 105 of the surviving schools. Uh, but we talked about this earlier, and I really want to learn about this, is you said that Rosenwald worked on a program before this school thing that sort of, you think, led to this or sort of set the set the guidelines for it. Rosenwald's philanthropy, as illustrated in the Rosenwald Schools Program, is incredibly innovative. Because think about this, right? He has said to the black community, you must contribute to these schools. That is an early example of a challenge grant. He has said to the public school system, you must participate. That is public-private partnership. And Rosenwald is also one of the earliest philanthropists to say that he wanted the funds to be given away within X number of years of his death. Because what he, he said, he believed that the generation that helped create the wealth should benefit from the philanthropy that was, that was possible because of that wealth. So he mandated that all of the funds would be given away within 25 years of his death. And in fact, the fund gave away, the funds were expended within 15 years. And the fund, he dies in 1932 and the Rosenwald Fund shuts down in 1948. This is very fashionable in philanthropy today. Really? Bill Gates has said this. Warren Buffett has said it here in Atlanta. Bernie Marcus has said this. Um, but he was the first person to initiate that. Challenge grants. Uh, in Rosenwald's philanthropic history, a program that predates this. In, 19, in, the, in the end of 1910, the leaders of the YMCA in Chicago come to Julius Rosenwald and ask if he will contribute to the creation of an African-American YMCA. And he shocks them with two statements. First, he says, I will contribute $25,000 to the creation of a black YMCA in Chicago if the rest of the community, black and white, will raise $75,000. And, he says, I will do that for any major city in America. And as a result of that, 24 cities across the United States have YMCAs for, that were originally for the African-American community with funding from Julius Rosenwald, including the Butler Street Y yes. in downtown Atlanta, yes. which, of course, has a storied history in the civil rights history of Atlanta. So, and I had no idea. I think when I first researched that building, I, I saw those sort of subscription drives. You know, they would call out for people to, you know, throw in $20 or something, but I never knew that that direct chunk of funding came from him. Yeah. Really, it's very similar to this Rosenwald School. I mean, this makes sense that yeah. it's the same idea. Did all of these, when you said architecture plans, this made me think, did, did they have a set standard, this is what your school is going to look like? And were they all exactly the same? Because yeah. they tend to all look like long rectangles. Yeah. So the earliest phase of the program 
the architectural idiom is laid out by a man named Robert Robinson Taylor. Robert Robinson Taylor is the first African-American to attend MIT, the first accredited African-American architect, and he is the chief architect at Tuskegee. And he leads this team of architects, and they lay out this basic architectural idiom. Very large windows to let in lots of light because there were originally schools lacked electricity. Cloak rooms so that dirty outer garments could be kept out of the education spaces and not dirty the education spaces. Potbelly stoves that vented through brick chimneys that could keep the school uh, warm in colder months. And these folding doors that could separate the, ed- the, the different classrooms so that they were separate classrooms for educational hours, but then could be fo- collapsed back and opened up So that the whole building could be used as a community center after hours. And that basic basic architectural language stays throughout the entire program. Now, there are a variety of types of schools. In fact, so I I knew from the beginning this was an amazing story. The question is, how do you tell it visually? And there is this architectural narrative. The program starts with these one-teacher schools, two-teacher schools, three-teacher schools that are small, white, clabbered structures. To the end of the program, they're building one, two, and three-story red brick buildings. And I started out by shooting these exteriors. And I would find these Rosenwald schools. And my exhibition of my first work was traveling at the time. And I would load up these photographs in the back of my wife's SUV. And I would take it, for example, to the International Civil Rights Museum uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, And I would shoot Rosenwald schools all the way up. And I would shoot them all the way back. I'd line them up by GPS coordinates. And then uh, four months later, I'd come take the exhibition down. And I'd do the same thing all over again. But what I quickly realized was that the architectural narrative was incomplete. And so I wanted to get inside these schools because very few of these buildings were still in use for educational purposes. Most of them are too small and they outgrew their usefulness as educational facilities a long time ago. So if you're going to save them, it's an adaptive reuse story. Well, to tell the adaptive reuse story, you have to get inside, right? Some of them are museums, some of them are church halls, some of them are apartment buildings, some of them are I'm sure I said community centers, uh, but there are a variety of these uses. And so once you have to get inside, you have to get permission. Yeah. And once you start reaching out to people, that's when I ended up stumbling into these former students and former teachers Uh, and the preservationists and the historians. And as re- and it was they become the emotional heart of this narrative, and there are twenty one portraits in this book. I saw the people, so that's what the people are. And it, those are the oh. former students, former teachers, preservationists, uh, people with unique connections to these schools, and that becomes this just extraordinary oh, sure. part of this entire journey. Yeah, that makes me happy. <laughs> Where was the first one built? Uh, the very first Rosenwald School is built in um, Lee County, Alabama. Uh, the program actually begins in it, it's um, the Lochapoca School. The program begins with a pilot of six schools, all close to Tuskegee, where Booker T. Washington and his team can keep an eye on this. And this leads to a really important part of the story, an important part of my journey. When those first six schools are constructed. Booker T. Washington has these photographs made of students and teachers standing proudly in front of their schools. 
so tangibly carrying the hopes and dreams of their communities. And he sends these photographs to, to Julius Rosenwald, who writes back that he is so moved that he is going to expand the program. And these photographs continue to be taken throughout the history of the program, and they become part of the visual history and the visual language of this program. All of my bodies of work prior to this work were in color, but it was in uh, homage to the, these oh, historical photographs okay. so that I shot this body of work, not only entirely in black and white, but entirely horizontally, because that's the visual that language of, these, wow. of this architecture. Do yes. those pictures still exist, I'm assuming? They're... Absolutely. And in fact, there's a photograph of one of these photographs in this body okay. of work to bring that story into this narrative. Wow. Do those still exist? Those pilot schools, those structures? No, none of the original, none of those original schools exist. The oldest Rosenwald school that I came across and that I am aware of—that was my second question. What's yeah, the oldest is one in Hale County, there? Alabama. It's the Emory School, and in the original documentation put together by um, Robert Robinson Taylor and his team of architects at Tuskegee, they have two particular designs: a one-teacher school. Uh, and a, what's called a, um, a central school that was sort of larger for a two-story central school for uh, an area that had a denser African-American population. And this particular school in Hale County is the only example that I know that survives of this original Robert Robinson Taylor one-teacher design. Oh. And it, it's um, it's the earliest surviving school that's certainly portrayed in my book. And what uh, is it now? Uh, it's now a community center. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, 19, it, was built in, it was built around 1915. So this leads me to my second question. If I'm in Atlanta right now, yeah. what, is, what is my closest Rosenwald school? So the school? closest Rosenwald school uh, is the Noble Hill School in Bartow County, which is about an hour up 75. It's in a little town called Cassville, and it has an amazing story. Wow. Webster Wheeler grows up in this town of Cassville and leaves as part of the Great Migration. So he's a black man. He's a black man. Okay. He has an entire career with the Ford Motor Company. 1923, he finds that his community has been given a Rosenwald grant, and he moves back to Cassville, and with one other member of the community, single-handedly, I mean single-handedly, double-handedly, builds a school. Wow. Oh, so that was his donation? That was, was the, yeah. That like, was, so he, he builds the school. Roll forward. When the school closes, one of his ancestors helps lead the effort to turn this school into a community center and muse and a cultural center that celebrates the history of African Americans in North Georgia. It's then run by his great great granddaughter, wow, uh, Marion Coleman, who is the curator of this cultural center for 20 years, who then hands the baton to her niece, Valerie Coleman, who is now the curator of this center. And I go up there, and Webster Wheeler's photograph hangs on the wall. Now, this I, I said earlier, my process is to read and shoot and shoot and read. And I had recently read Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons. Yes. And she tells this extraordinary story that when the migrants of the Great Migration arrived in the North, they had their photographs taken as a statement that they had arrived in a new promised land. And this photograph hangs on the wall. Ugh. And so my portrait of, of Marion Coleman and Valerie Coleman is holding up this, this historic photograph taken upon his, uh, Webster Wheeler's arrival in Detroit. Um, and, and behind them is one of the original blackboards in the school. And above the blackboards are portraits of Rosa Parks, Dr. King. And President Obama. Wow. And so this is a museum of, in a sense, that yes. I could visit like 
this Absolutely. weekend. Yes. How many Rosenwald schools are in the state of Georgia? So there were originally 242 Rosenwald schools in Georgia. Only about 40 or so remain. And of those, maybe half have been restored. Wow, that's sad. Were there never any in the metro area, like Fulton County or DeKalb County? And is that because we had, you know, things like Atlanta University and Spelman and Morehouse and all that? As I recall, there were two in Fulton County, but they t- they tended to be constant. The, the, to the extent that there were school public schools in the South for African Americans, they tended to be in more urban areas. And so the, the emphasis on the program was in areas that were less served. But that said, by the time the program sort of has fully flowered, if you take out the state of Missouri, which joined the program late and only had three Rosenwald schools, so the 14 core states of the program, two-thirds of all counties in those 14 states had Rosenwald schools, and 85% of counties that had school-age African-American children had Rosenwald schools. Wow. So the program is extraordinarily comprehensive. So what's your favorite Rosenwald school that you photographed? Well, there's an, there's an incredible wealth of stories, but there is, and sometimes, and I'm drawing, I'm drawn to story, and there's lots of these schools that have incredible stories, and I could, you know, go on and on. But I, I'll, I'll tell you one particular story, one particular schoolhouse, which I am drawn to visually, and yet it has this controversial history within the program. It's the Pleasant Plains School in Hartford County, North Carolina, and it has a cupola. The Rosenwald <laughs> Fund. The architectural guidelines called for modesty. Ah. And it called for modesty in part to save cost and in part so that it did not tr- these schools did not track the, uh, attract the ire, otherwise known as arson, of the local white citizenry. And yet, they give these guidelines to these communities. The African-American communities have agency. And in Pleasant Plains, they wanted a cupola, so they built a cupola. <laughs> There's another school, uh, which is extraordinary, the um, Lincoln School in Pikeville, Tennessee, which is in eastern Tennessee. All the walls and ceilings are covered with this decorative pressed tin. And you can just feel when you're in this space the pride of the community that caused them to say, we are going to decorate our walls like this. Uh, But going back to the cupola for a second, there was an architecture professor at George Peabody College in Nashville named Fletcher Dressler, who the Rosenwald Fund hires in 1919 to do a review of the architectural standards and to update them. He hated cupolas <laughs> because he saw them as a remnant of church architecture, and therefore to him, they vi- on a schoolhouse, they violated oh. his concept of separation of church and state. Oh, that's fascinating. And yet, of 105 schools that I went to, three had cupolas, really? and that is African-American Agency, and this was in North Carolina. That one's in North Carolina. The oh. other two cupolas, there was one. There's one in Georgia that has a cupola, and there was another one that I found in Kentucky that That's has a cupola. That's incredible. Yeah. I love all of this. Well, so tell me the name because the name of this book is is longer. So I want you to say the name of the book and then where people can get it. Yeah. So the book is uh, A Better Life for Their Children, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the four thousand nine hundred and seventy eight schools that change America. And uh, it has a forward by Congressman. It does Congressman have a con- yes. Lewis. So the the, the 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 program is transformative. There are these uh, economists of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that have done five studies of Rosenwald schools, and their what their data shows 
is that there was this large and persistent black-white education gap in the South prior to World War I. And between World War I and World War II, that gap closes precipitously. And the single greatest driver of that achievement is Rosenwald schools. But in addition, many of the leaders and foot soldiers of the civil rights movement come through these schools. Medgar Evers, Maya Angelou, several of the members of Little Rock Nine who, Little Rock, who integrate Little Rock Central High School, and Congressman John Lewis all attended Rosenwald schools. And so, uh, but I reached out to Congressman Lewis to ask him to, 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 if he would contribute this forward to the book. And he said to me, I'm not sure I'm comfortable writing the history of Rosenwald schools because I know I went to school there. And I said to him, I said, Congressman Lewis, Jeannie Syriac from the Georgia State Historic <laughs> Preservation Office is writing a historical essay in this book. Brent Legs, who heads up the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund at the National Trust for Historic Preservation, is writing an afterward. I have an essay in this book. <laughs> I think we have that topic covered. But what I want you to do is what only you can do. Bring us into that classroom. What was it like to go to school there? And tell us the role that education played in your life. And he says, oh, I can do that. Oh, and he's written this just it. extraordinary introduction to this book. And what, a, what, an, what an incredible privilege it was that my through my photography, I got to spend time with Congressman Lewis working on, um, on this essay and Yes. including his portrait in the book. And I'll just I'll tell you one more thing um, about this. And the portrait Congressman Lewis is wearing on his lapel, Cancer Awareness Ribbon. This is October 29th of, 19, of 2019. And I had two rules that I used in my portraits. One is I did not tell anybody what to wear. And two, I didn't tell them what expressions to put on their face, how to act. And so he, Congressman Lewis says to me, should I take my ribbon off. And I said, no, Congressman, that is authentically you, and I want the authentic you. And two months later, he announced his diagnosis with pancreatic cancer. Oh, my goodness. This is incredible stories, and I cannot thank you enough. I mean, I am so moved, and you know what I love is that I know how, I can see how much you love this, and I feel the same way about so many things, and so it's just like, it's like a nerd connection. You know? like, I, I, I feel that. And it's like, I get so excited for that. Right. I'm also, kid you not, I'm going to Cassville like this weekend. <laughs> um, and You should call in advance because I don't know what their hours oh, are. Okay, yes. Um, but I didn't answer your question earlier. Um, the book is available um, in multiple places. Um, if you, uh, I certainly believe in supporting local bookstores. It's available at Acapella Books. Uh, it's available on Amazon. And you can also buy signed and personalized copies through my website, which is andrewfiler.com. Okay, perfect. So there you have it, the history of Rosenwald schools and Andrew Filer's journey into documenting them. I highly recommend this book. It's beautiful. The personal stories and photos are wonderful. There is also a photography exhibition going on. It's called A Better Life for Their Children, and it debuted at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in downtown Atlanta on May 22nd, and it's going to be up until December. So you have plenty of time to go see it. If you have not been to the museum yet, you should run there immediately. But even if you've been like I have been many times, there is always another reason to go, and then this exhibit could be your extra reason to visit. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I will be officially back in your podcast feeds next week.